Hello and welcome everyone. Today I am joined by some very special guests. This is a continuation of the series begun on uh, Voices with Verveke, uh, the artful scaling of the religion that's not a religion. And so uh, I am joined by John Verveke and Layman Pascal, and uh, we're going to kind of pick up from from where we left off. Uh, hopefully uh, folks will be familiar with what uh, we've already kind of uh, done over there, but um, for those who need a quick refresh, we'll do a little intro and a little recap and then uh, dive back into the conversation. So um, John, if you wanna go first and give a little intro and, uh, and recap. Uh, thank you, Brennan. Uh, I'm John Verveke. Um, I'm uh, the author of the Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series and several other series, uh, Untangling the World Knot with Greg Enriquez, The Elusive Eye with Greg and with Christopher Master Pietro, and, and then uh, with Zach Stein and Greg um, towards a metapsychology that is true to transformation. And I'm also, <laughs> sounds like it's a side job. <laughs> My main job is actually, I'm a professor at the University of Toronto in cognitive psychology and cognitive science. Um, so, I guess I'm also the person who has at least labeled it, although I think many other people are pursuing this project of the religion that's not a religion. I've labeled it, and uh, and then uh, Paul Vanderclay and Jonathan Piaget have leveled uh, fair criticism about the scaling problem. And then Brendan and Lehman reached out to me, uh, let's talk about the artful scaling of the religion that's not a religion. Last time, just to give the highlights that stand out in my mind, we zeroed in on some problems. We zeroed on problems of pedagogical pluralism. We're teaching many different people at many different backgrounds. Uh, with the, we, the problem of the con versus the conveyor belt. Um, how, do we, how are we conveying people in um, without conning them? And how do we prevent the conveyor belt from becoming an excuse for conning and manipulating people? Uh, we're dealing with competing ontologies. This is the Heideggerian notion of uh, technologies that embed and insinuate an ontology into our, our minds and our characters in ways uh, that we often are blind to. Um, and then the last one was the code problem. Um, how do we present materials so it reaches people within a certain cultural cognitive grammar while also challenging that? Uh, and it was a sweet spot there. And then it seemed to me, and Brendan and Lehman seemed to agree that when we were trying to address these issues, we were at least in part trying to explicate uh, trustworthiness. Um, one proposal we discussed was the idea of an ecology of institutions um, that act as dynamical constraints on each other, something analogous to the church and the monastery and the university, um, and that could help. Uh, and so that checks and balance and self-correcting dynamical system. So making a system as self-correcting as possible uh, was one mark. But then I, I raised the question explicitly about what are the marks of trustworthiness uh, that uh, we should be looking for, both in individuals and institutions. So that's sort of my gist of uh, what I saw happening last time. Great. Yeah, thanks. I think that's really helpful. Um, Layman, what's your take? Uh... Well, it's an honor and pleasure to be again in the company of two such explorers and also in the company of whatever spirit can move between, spill over and inspire us to subtler and more radiant things. I'm a thinker and communicator specializing in spirituality of a certain kind. And I guess just judging by my clothes where this top button looks suspiciously like a 
a Jesuit outfit. I'm a, a priest who isn't a priest, <laughs> which might be perfect <laughs> for the religion that isn't a religion. Um, I think we began a discussion last time with the art, uh, meaning both the skill and the valorization of aesthetics involved in tailoring behavioral and conceptual communication of wisdom practices and wisdom principles to different temperamental and hermeneutic demographics, as well as um, cultivating ways of doing that at larger scales over intergenerational periods of time. Mm. I sort of think about like, what are the regional biomes in the ecology of practices? And how can an ecology of institutions secure and verify and amplify rather than substitute, undermine and exploit the cultivation of wisdom in beings like ah, us? And I think last time that conversation evolved into a consideration at the end of trust and plausibility and seriousness. Yeah. Uh, how do we take seriously a person or a practice or an institution that purports to provide wisdom instruction? How do we evaluate ourselves to see if something trustworthy is emerging in us? And what kinds of symbols and phrasings and situations produce that um, adequately visceral nod of participatory willingness, uh, as well as uh, when and how we should be concerned to tease apart the all of that from the hypnotic hacking of our minds by groups, individuals, markets, and machines. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's where I think we're at. I'm very interested in talking about uh, trust as mutual adaptation, trust as a synonym for value generally, uh, the differences between trust as something that you can get from people by phrasing things a certain way and trust as something you can elicit from people by uh, embracing where they're already at. And part of that coming back to Brendan will be, is narratives used more as a cause or a side effect of workable processes in this regard? Mm -hmm. Great. Well, yeah. All right. So that, that's sort of, uh, you know, I can't really add anything better to that. I think that that, that pretty much um, tracks pretty well with where, where I'm at with all this. Um, and what, I, what I'd love to do at the outset here is as a way into kind of exploring the trustworthiness issue. Um, I think for me, this uh, is so caught up with the pedagogical issue that I'd like to uh, dig in a little bit more and, and throw some more uh, specific framing of that idea into the mix here um, in order to kind of clarify where I'm sort of coming at uh, the trustworthiness question and really all of these issues more broadly. Um, and I'd love to see if this framing of it lands, um, if there are ways in which it's uh, also problematic in ways that we might want to consider. Um, and so for me, this, this gets to the, again, sort of that, the way of um, clarifying what, what Lehman called the functional subdivisions that we're, that we're really addressing in this uh, sort of uh, di different uh, demographic populations um, question. And so um, as John also rightly noted that, you know, there's a, it's a concern to try to engage in certain taxonomies of groups of people, uh, as he said himself, you know, you're either going to do it scientifically or not at all. Um, and, uh, and so one of the ways that I found most helpful for being able to do this is uh, through developmental psychology. Um, and I think a great way of sort of framing this um, would be like through the work of uh, uh, James Fowler. Um, this is the stages of faith uh, work. Um, which is has been highly influential, uh, very you know frequently cited. It's the basis of of a great deal amount of work. Um, 
And uh, I feel like it, it at least offers an initial kind of way into these considerations because it offers what I view to be a helpful, um, maybe a taxonomy we can use loosely, but still as a helpful guide um, with these different stages of faith. And we don't have to get into what they are specifically, um, but it, what it does that I find to be useful is it frames the question explicitly within a sort of developmental framework. Um, and that means, uh, of course, then, then we're working within this pedagogical uh, sort of lens that we can begin to think more about, well, what does it mean to move through these stages? Um, but at least it provides a certain kind of helpful um, sort of map in terms of thinking about this. And I'll come back to this too, because this ties in really closely with the narrative question, um, because some of these stages are particularly uh, kind of uh, most uh, effectively communicated, or one of the most uh, kind of central communication tools is story and narrative um, and stories as meaning making devices and that sort of a thing. Um, but the reason why I bring all this up at the outset is because I feel like it helps clarify this issue for me of the question of trustworthiness, because it frames it as the question of, well, who am I, who am I looking to for guidance? And if something like this does hold, then it would seem to me that basically um, I would be looking to uh, someone who embodies and, and inhabits a kind of uh, a perspective that we could locate in sort of an adjacent stage that I could say that has enough familiarity to me and enough similarity, but also is enough of a challenge, um, enough of a remove that I can see the, the, the gap that I would need to cross. Um, and so this again, kind of gets at that issue of um, the proximal zone of development, issues of flow and things like that. Um, and I think that it, it's sort of, it's a calling of, um, of an adjacent group that, again, there's sort of enough overlap that I can see myself sort of prefigured in folks that uh, you know, might, are coming from this perspective. And that the question then of trust, trustworthiness is sort of um, almost like trusting your future self or who your, your future self would wish to become. Um, and uh, that would be sort of my way in to try to link these things. Um, I think that these sorts of Developmental typologies or um, taxonomies, again, can be certainly problematic. So I'd like to maybe talk about some of that, but just as a way into sort of the trustworthiness question and thinking about it in terms of when you have a map to be able to guide your transformation and when you can be able to locate yourself kind of within a, a locus of enough similarity to, to what would be transformative and drawing you forward, um, then, you know, it sort of takes off the pressure of the sort of leap into the absolute, which isn't really possible necessarily from any particular given stage, but more of an incremental uh, progression uh, by means of inspiration. And when you have the maps that can help you do that, um, I feel like that can be uh, really helpful. So I'm not sure if any of that lands or if it's, if it, if it, yes. if it's making sense, but um, yeah. So I just wanted to throw that out there and, and then we can go anywhere with the rest of this and uh, consider what the implications of some of this might be. Um, so, yeah. Well, um, I, I, it's been a while since I read Fowler, so uh, I might have some of the details wrong. Uh, but um, <laughs> I don't know what this is, uh, uh, synchronicity or not. So I lectured yesterday on uh, criticisms of uh, Piaget's stage model of development. 
And of course, Piaget is behind Kohlberg and Kohlberg is behind Fowler. There's a pretty direct line. Um, and this ties right into the narrative. Um, so we've got a narrative of development. And one of my criticisms about how people use Piaget, this isn't a criticism of Piaget per se, is they concentrate on the narrative of this stage, then this stage, then this stage, then this stage. The problem with that, and I won't go into the detail, is there's lots, uh, like lots of empirical evidence that we don't we don't have a monolithic mind that moves from stage to stage, uh, that we don't that we don't leave previous forms of behavior behind, um, and so um, the narrative part of Piaget and therefore of Kohlberg and therefore of, of Fowler, uh, the narrative of the stages is something that I'm always a little bit wary of. Now, what I proposed is that instead, what we should be concentrating on when we talk about development, this is about cognitive development is we should be concentrating on the mechanisms of change as opposed to the narrative. And so here's an analogy. You've got an, a narrative of the fossil record and here are the strata and here, this strata is above this strata. You can do all that, but ultimately what I want is I want Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection. I want the mechanism of development rather than getting sort of uh, you know, caught up in the narrative of the stages or the strata or however we wanna put it. Um, and, the, and the problem with this is, you know, human development is a mixture of, uh, of quantitative and qualitative, continuous and discontinuous. Um, and, the, and the brain is not a, a single machine. It's a machine of machines that can make itself into different kinds of machines. And so uh, I'm not saying we don't, um, we don't make use of the taxonomy, uh, the stages, but you said you wanted to consider some of the problematic aspects. And one recommendation I would make is we, we hold the stages lightly uh, because they only map lightly onto human development. Um, and we don't let them blind us to, I think, the more important question. That's what I was doing with the fossil record versus Darwin's theory. The more important question is what are the mechanisms of change? And then that I would then pose that what uh, taking a developmental um, approach to trustworthiness is we want what is the evidence for the mechanisms of change in an individual. Let me give a concrete example of what I'm talking about. Um, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a pretty strong heuristic. I don't know if it's an algorithm, but it's a pretty strong sort of heuristic uh, that pain, tend, pain and distress tend to make people very egocentric and, and at times even selfish. Um, and what that means developmentally is uh, one of the mechanisms of change I'd, I would look for is the degree to which people have dealt with trauma. Um, they've dealt with trauma in a way that is helpful to other people. Um, because for me, that's an indication that they have loosened one of the great attractors to the black hole of egocentrism um, in a powerful way. And for me, some signs of that um, are... Um, a, a capacity to uh, uh, experience grief, share grief with other people. Um, I think that's a very important ability, not to talk around it. Uh, very often there's nothing to be said with about grief other than sharing that you also have experienced grief to open yourself up and share it with other people. And this goes with a broader, um, the degree to which people are capable of self-correction, not just being corrected by others, but of self-correction. Um, those for me, they, they, they cluster together uh, as um, an indication 
that people are doing things to overcome um to overcome i'll just put it i'll put it simply it's more complex but to overcome egocentrism um not to de- not to destroy it by the way and that's not what i'm saying um but this multi-perspectival capacity so that's what i mean by a mechanism of change what it, like what is it what are the processes and practices that people do that will actually put them through development uh, rather than trying to say which stage are they in um, like I said, I, I find that challenging and problematic. I'm open to discussion about this, though, Brendan, of course. Uh, but, uh, but like I said, uh, you know, the, the, the prototypical instance of this is Piaget. And I think there's very good argument and evidence against, you know, his monolithic mind uh, moving through stages. Um, but I do think the, his proposals for co- the kinds of mechanisms of change, assimilation, accommodation, stuff like that, I think those are well uh, well-placed. Um, and so similarly, I would like to look for um, what are, what's the, what are the mechanisms of change that we're looking for in people and what kind of evidence would we seek? And I gave some concrete suggestions. They, they were not meant to be exhaustive. They were just meant to be exemplary. Um, stages are a very interesting thing to consider and we do have to hold them lightly. And I think uh, even the really good complex versions of them uh, are imperfect and need a lot more work. Um, but only the really good complex ones, I think, are worth considering. You know, if you if you look at it through that Wilbur lens, you go, well, OK, maybe there's stages, but the stages might be moving along multiple trajectories simultaneously and in different styles for different modes and temperaments and typologies. And the stages are not replacements. They're additive inclusion. So the second stage transcends and includes and carries the first stage with it. So you start making a really sophisticated map and then you wonder whether that the sophistication you would need in order to make a stage model workable is worth it when you could instead focus basically on um, the sets of procedures and supportive conditions that enable change from wherever you're at. But there's a balance there because if you're climbing a ladder, so to speak, the most important thing you have to do is go to the next rung. And people who are engaged in long-term esoteric practice, I think learn to get over their initial sense that it's a straight line from them to illumination. And they start to think about, well, what's my next step? However, in order to want to do it in the first place, you do need, like Graham Brandon was saying, some kind of inspiration, some kind of prefiguring of what it could be like for you. I'm personally kind of curious about how Fowler relates to, you know, what the metamodernists call cultural codes, right? Like it's not necessarily a description in Fowler of basic stages of human development. It might be a approximation of stages of some kind of spiritual development or some form of human well-being but then that would show up kind of orthogonally to different um, styles of receiving information and engaging in trust practices Mm -hmm. and i think the two the big distinction there in terms of how people think about trust practices seems to be the people who are you know to, to to be a piagetian for a second more concrete operational and more formal operational Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people whose reasoning is very symbolic, uh, and they get trust markers when things match the symbol sets from their particular uh, ecological cultural pool and lineage. And they might even prefer a flag pin to an actual war hero when it comes to patriotism, because trust is based on the symbol for them. On the other side, there's people like 
I, I think of Leonard Cohen being asked what attracted him to Zen Buddhism, and he said nothing. I met a human being I liked, and if he was an imam, I would be a Muslim right now. So for him, he was looking for some very specific functional characteristics in another human being, and it might even have been off-putting to him to have it be symbolically verified. There are a lot of people for whom it matches the symbol or it's in the narrative or it's in the text or it's one of our things, that that's a suspicious sign for them. So there's a sort of, you know, modern or traditional, we don't, we don't have to think about it stages, it could just be two demographics, but I think there's two strong sets in the world of um, what people go to in order to look for trust markers in order to think something might be a source of wisdom. Yeah, I, I, for me, what is helpful about thinking about it um, in a sort of progressive developmental sense is um, thinking about purely just demographics is sort of a sort of a relativization of that set, and it sort of it doesn't really propose any kind of uh, connections of any of any particular nature other than just difference. Whereas if you can set these things in a, in a particular sequence, you can begin to see certain kinds of attractor pulls and, and, and sort of magnetic movements going on between these different groups. And that's why, and this is also tied in with this issue of trust, is it sort of like, who am, who am I most likely to be, to find trustworthy? Who am I most likely to see as my best future self as I can conceive of it from where I'm at now? Well, that's going to be someone who's a little bit further down that path than I am. Um, so that's why I feel like this, if it could work, if it could be uh, nuanced and complex in the ways that you're talking about, Layman, it would be helpful for being able to get a lay of that land. Um, and also, it's crucial for me because of this issue of narrativization. Um, it's, it's like, you know, one of the questions here uh, about really the whole notion of the religion that's not a religion is, is, uh, is there some kind of ideal version of it that that everyone would be sort of relating with or engaging at a certain kind of form or level or are by the very nature of the fact that we're talking about this pedagogic pedagogical pluralism that this is being translated in different ways and one of the ways that we're talking and discussing and problematizing is a narrativization uh sort of translation effect and mm -hmm. and if you are thinking in a developmental or through a developmental lens, um, you know, in Fowler, it's the synthetic conventional stage, which for, you know, folks who are, who are engaging with matters of ultimate concern um, from that, through that perspective, you know, uh, perspective um, and using that set of kind of cognitive tools and whatnot, narrative is going to be crucial. Um, and I think that if we're not sensitive to those needs of different people um, in, in a way that's not just saying, um, well, we could do without this if it were presented in the right way or, or something like that, right? And when we view it through this you know, lens, it becomes actually indispensable for, and not for a, a negligible amount of people either. I mean, that's another kind of implication of the developmental lens is you're seeing sort of the normal distribution fall in these particular stages of synthetic conventional and maybe some individual uh, ref uh, reflective. And that means that if we want to be efficacious and effective in our implementation of, of, of this communication, we need to really be, we need to take seriously um, where people are at, how they view the world, what tools they use to, to, to view the world and make sense of things, um, and then translate accordingly. Um, and so that's why 
um, I feel like it could be helpful. But again, I think that there's also a lot that would need to be unpacked. And a lot of the, you know, the, the dark side of all these issues is ever present for me. And I want to be really cognizant of all that. And uh, having waded into now some, you know, uh, communities that are ex that explore developmental frameworks of things, I can definitely, I've become aware of all sorts of ways that these things can be misapplied, oversimplified, um, and just outright abused if they're kind of not uh, engaged with, with the sort of uh, actual nuance and sensitivity that they require. So um, I don't know, uh, that's sort of a, we can, we can certainly, you know, very much continue the conversation without relying on a taxonomy that's uh, kind of rooted in development. But I'd be also just curious to know to what degree we might find it to be a sort of loose construct to structure the, uh, the, 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 the conversation and the debate around these issues. I think the point you made is an excellent one, the demographic versus the developmental. And I think it's almost inevitable that people will not sit with just demographics. They will try to organize them in some fashion. I agree. I think that's correct. And that is going to have some implicit normativity to it, which is uh, going to make it at a, a, a developmental model. The issue I have with develop, so I, I think there's a sense in which if, I think there's an argument I could maybe make on your behalf goes something like this. We take uh, pedagogical pluralism to be a reality. Uh, and then we, we take it that uh, what Lehman says, there is the demographics, there's going to be the demographic differences. But then there's a third sort of uh, premise, which is people are not going to leave these dis uh, disorganized, unco uh, uncoordinated. They're going to try and organize them in some fashion. That's going to either implicitly or explicitly put them into some developmental schema. I think that's a very good argument. Um, and so um, we either leave it implicit or we make it explicit. I, I, I prefer making things explicit because that brings the possibility of transparency. But so, but here's what, here's what I want to then say about that. The, and here's how I can sharpen my criticisms. The decision about the ordering of the stages is based on one of two things. It's based on an implicit normative model, often the person proposing the <laughs> the, the sequence of the stages is the model of the culmination. Uh, that's clearly the case in Piaget. Everybody is trying to become a scientist, right? Right, right. Um, 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 and, you know, uh, and so that's one. And I really am very wary of that. Um, that seems to me to be one step away from cult formation, uh, getting people focused on the individual rather than on development, et cetera. The other is there's often an implicit theory, and again, I'm going to, this is my point, of a mechanism of development. This is sort of the Aristotelian model. Here's the mechanism of development. And once you understand the mechanism, then you can justify how you place the stages in relationship to each other. So I'll take it that I'm like, there's this argument, okay, pedagogical pluralism, demographic differences, the inevitability of a developmental schema, and then right, the, the, two, the, the normativities for justifying it. The two that I see um, most frequently used are, like I say, uh, the normativity of a particular individual, uh, and that's very problematic, or the, or the Aristotelian strategy, ultimately Plato, but the Aristotelian strategy, no, no, here are the mechanisms of change, and given this account of the mechanisms, that's how I can justify the sequence. Um, so I'm proposing that as a way of trying to gather together uh, what we're saying here. I, I'm interested to hear uh, what you two want, think about that. I think the normativity problem is um, huge, or at least it's 
currently one of the major types of attacks leveled against developmental stage models in general, both for individuals and cultures. Yes. Because yeah. the, you know, everyone wants to be a scientist, but also everybody wants to be, a, you know, modernity or something like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, I mean, you, you could say that everybody who's building a model is always looking back in a Hegelian sense and recapitulating the history that led to them. And that that's fine <laughs> that we have to keep stepping back in a meta sense and make a, a model out of all the people doing that, because each one might be showing you their level and the preceding levels. Uh, so there's a way to mitigate that normativity problem a little bit. For me, one of the bigger problems is the possibility of multiple histories that aren't the ones that we inherit. Right. So even if we were to say that there's some kind of link between um, the skills that are privileged in modernity and some neo-Piagetian uh, form of thinking, it's not necessarily the case that what we think of as modernity was the only way that could have gone. Right? A richer sense of human history goes, oh, wait, those skills were showing up in a lot of different ways in a lot of different cultures exactly. that we're looking at. And that's true of each of these. So if we wanted to think of stages, we would be thinking of sets of possible stages, most of which we're blind to. Uh, so that, that makes it a very, you know, a more complex and organic and fun thing to think about, but also highly dubious to use as any kind of rigorous taxonomy or cartography. Um, I, informationally, Right. And technologically, there's been some kind of drift over the course of history. And we could break that up into stages in terms of just the sheer complication of the cultural and technological environments and the types of pattern making that people are exposed to over time. And I think it's important to distinguish that in the sort of development and demographic sense from this other possibility of what we want of the religion that isn't a religion to do for people. That there's some kind of development that could be possible regardless of your uh, cultural ethos. And it doesn't really matter whether we're thinking of that cultural ethos as part of a, a, a complexified unfolding historical set or whether we think of it as just a, you know, a random scatter of typologies. Nonetheless, any one of these uh, ethoi <laughs> Uh, can be a situation in which some refined gradation of human being is more possible. So I think one of the problems around trust is how do you how do you build trust given the fact that people are in these different zones mm -hmm. and having mm -hmm. established that trust, uh, implement more of the developmental mechanisms of wisdom, um, given that there's a problem about being too simplistic and mechanical about how those dynamics operate. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think that's, you know, you said complex, uh, you know, the, the complication, but the complexification in some ways is really the mechanism, I think, um, which um, I, I think that that's a, that's a really helpful way of, of, of parsing out what's helpful about the developmental model is in avoiding the pitfalls of sort of just thinking, well, here are these stages, let's fit people into them, but much more thinking, you know, what process, what mechanism is unfolding that is generating what we are classifying yeah. as these stages. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so from that lens, I think the notion of um, of nuance and refinement and complexification really is a crucial, at least a part of the mechanism. And when we can think about it that way, um, I mean, in the sense of 
you know, what the ecology of practices that, that you've uh, articulated, uh, John, and the, and the, the sort of, um, you know, awakening from the meaning crisis set of tools that is a reflection, a kind of metacognitive reflection on, on how the mind works, and then a kind of um, counter, uh, you know, set of, of dynamical processes that can deal with these perennial problems, right? That's a, that is, comes from a certain skill set that allows uh, thinking about thinking, thinking about cognition yeah. itself. And arguably, I mean, this is a big theme in, in so much of the developmental works, whether it's Keegan, especially Robert Keegan, but the notion of, uh, you know, development is a, is a process by which the subject becomes an object to itself successively in order to step back and gain perspective, um, which is a, a form of complexification and nuance and, and, uh, and is arguably what the set of tools are doing is sort of saying, what is, you know, why, why are we plagued by these various issues? Oh, well, the mind works in this way. And now we're aware of that. And now we can counter it. The question then is also, you know, does one need to be at a sort of meta cognitive level to appreciate those things? Or can that just the tools themselves be sort of uh, expressed in, in, in sort of practical and pragmatic means that, where that metacognition level isn't required. But the point is, I suppose I'm, I'm getting at here is that the, the mechanism, which is also, again, to try this back into that level of trust is, um, I want to be more aware of myself. Uh, I'm, I'm a fish in water and I want to be more aware of, of the water that I'm in. And each time I can do that, my world expands. Um, I can take in new perspectives. I can be more aware of how I'm thinking and the, the various parasitic processes that are going on, I can name them. I mean, this is so much of the work that meditation does. Um, and what all arguably, well, let's say this is an open question, but maybe this is the goal of, of these ecologies of practices is to gain that sense of perspective. So if I'm seeing someone who has that richness of, of, of perspective, they're able to kind of look at things from a, a higher level. And I, I can sense that, but I'm still in the water. You know, and so I, I want what they've got and I trust someone who can speak with a greater level and a greater level of complexity, a greater level of self-awareness and a greater level of the, of the, the you know, someone with a greater optimal grip on reality, essentially. And that is going to be always kind of slightly out of reach if you think about it in a developmental process. And that is the attractor pull that's pulling people through. That's the... Uh, that's that, um, that the, the mark of trustworthiness is that that sense, uh, maybe even intuitive, that uh, someone is is at that next level. And that is attractive to me in all the most in all in every connotation of that term. It's attractive. And this, again, also ties in with the, the sense of beauty. So I'll throw some of those thoughts out there. For me, the, the, what I'm seeing in that proposal, I hadn't seen it before, is you're basically proposing uh, uh, at the level of distributed cognition. The machinery of enhanced relevance realization. Basically, you've got people who do the compressive function, and then you have people who do the particularization function, and they're constantly flowing before. You get the variation and the selection and the variation. So you're proposing a system uh, that is capable of evolving and self-correcting just intrinsically to its makeup. And I would put it to you that that would, again, be an, another cr criterion we would look for, for trustworthiness. So one is, you know, a capacity to uh, uh, to distinguish uh, indispensability from metaphysical necessity and hold it with finesse, as you put it. But then the, ra rather than you said, like an iron age hierarchy that is imposing 
you've got a, a, a structure that is actually implementing in its structural functional organization the machinery of relevance realization so that it is constantly in itself it is exemplifying this uh, this constant uh, attempt to fit itself uh, to the world at least that's what I'm seeing in what you're saying and, and I, I find that very exciting yeah I mean, one of my one of my proposals has been let's stop uh, doing social organization based on hierarchies and let's perhaps try and organize society the way the brain is organized uh, because the brain is the one thing we're pretty sure of can do relevance realization very well. So why don't we use that as a model? I'm hearing you say we can replace demographics and development with something that is in the Vedic model, which is levels of processing rather than stages right? And that people will, right? And so this is like the predictive processing model of the brain, right? At lower levels, the brain is basically predicting itself and then very proximate stuff. And then as you move up, it's predict, it's predicting very abstract stuff. But what every level is correcting the levels above and below it in a self-organizing manner. And so that allows the, the brain to have a, an optimal grip at, at any, in a multi-perspectival way, multiple levels of interaction, multiple scopes, uh, uh, and I, I think I, I, I think if, I, if I'm, I'm taking what you said and putting it together with what I said and what about Lehman, I, I think that's a really powerful proposal because that to me is again organizing things more like the brain is organized. Um, the temptation for that is it's it's superficially similar enough to Iron Age hierarchies that people could slide from what we're talking about back into Iron Age. Um, uh, hierarchies. And so uh, I think this proposal, I, at least I'm very excited about it. And I'm going to stop talking so layman can talk, but my, I guess I want to know how, like part of trustworthiness would be what are the marks that will allow us to clearly distinguish what we're, I think we're moving towards proposing here from what it's superficially similar to. Yeah, those are, it's a really key question. And this I mean, this um, mutually adaptive regulation at each of the levels has to be secured somehow. Yes. Uh, we, obviously, we have some neurobiological processes that have done it. We've seen something similar happen in the emergence of the sciences in the last several hundred years. Um, you know, when Brendan's talking about the potential use of these developmental cartographies, they're very good, but they can't just trump the incoming experience, right? You're like, okay, I have a theory of levels. Now, what information do I have? Do I have to, how do I pattern the information, but allow the model to be repatterned by the incoming information as well? Yeah, yeah. So right. we have to have then uh, a lot of people who are skilled in that and also have the ability to mutually verify each other as being skilled in that in order to help this succeed. Yeah. Um, this reminds me a little bit of the problem we came to last time, the, the con and conveyor belt problem. Yes. Which is how do you, how do you tell those things apart? And for me, because I have some training in hypnotherapy, I, I think a lot about how people work with trance, right? That there's some people who um, it seems like they have a sophistication where you want to help them be free from trances that are being imposed upon them and more able to go into the trances that they want. There's other people who are going to have a difficult time getting that skill set, And what they need is to, um, uh, have certain trances cultivated in themselves and they know that they need there's an adaptive process there one of the methods of trance induction is what they call getting a yes set so you get agreement from a person so they're willing to go on this transformative journey with you 
Uh, and one of the ways you do that is just to get them to affirm things that are already the case. Like, uh, you've, so you've come to go into a trance today. Yes. <laughs> you feel like you're willing to do that. Okay. Now, uh, as you listen to the sound of my voice, can you hear the sound of my voice? Like, these are things that are already the case and the person is now affirming them. And so the, the structure of the induction is matching what's already the case for the person. So the person can have trust because they can verify it because it's already the case for them. Mm -hmm. And because they're going into that affirmative mode of trusting, they are then willing to adapt themselves a little bit to the person who's trying to modify them. And it's only because the person who's trying to modify them has already adapted to their current condition. So I see something in there that's similar to the protocols that would be needed at all of these interfaces. Mm -hmm. And it leads to this other problem of, of how do we stop ourselves from constantly being hacked <laughs> by things that resemble what we want so that we can focus on hacking ourselves in the ways that we want to get hacked. And that's very slippery. So we need to look for signifiers that might be more primitive um, that we think are no longer efficacious in getting the results that we want. Like we mentioned the halo effect, right? Mm -hmm. so a, yeah, a yeah. large number of the cognitive biases suggest to us that this is a trustworthy thing, that it's reinforcing something about ourselves so we can open and go along with the changes they're proposing. But there must be some indicators that suggest that that kind of trust is no longer viable for us. And we're looking for a higher grade of trust, which is a little bit like what Brendan is saying about the, the sponsor or the person who's helpfully just a little bit above us, right? How do we single that person out from someone who just wants to uh, manipulate us or give us the feeling of trust, like a bank that has the word trust on it in big letters? Is that an indicator that they're <laughs> trustworthy or an indicator that they're untrustworthy? Yeah, I, I think... Um... I think we we want to, we want individuals who give us and we'll have to talk about this more specifically that they have a capacity to cut through bullshit um, in some fashion. Um, and again, I want to come back to something I said before. They have a capacity to to cut through bullshit when they're under stress, when they're close to being traumatized, when they're dealing with their own trauma, where they confront grief. Uh, it's fairly easy. Uh, to, you know, to talk about this stuff in situations in which people are sort of stable. Uh, but if we're, if we're going to, I think if we're, if we're going to be sort of honest to the, the, what the history shows is people come into this, yes, they may have the carrot of aspiration, but they also have the stick of overcoming trauma and pain and foolishness and self-deceptive and self-deceptive self and self-destructive behavior. Um, so again, one of the marks I look for is, is a kind of plausibility of evidence uh, that this person can cut through bullshit even when, you know, their, their feet are in the fire uh, kind of thing. Um, and, and for me, um, you know, do I, have lots, do I have lots of independent lines of evidence that they're capable of this? And then when I see them do it, does that open up paths of development for me that I didn't see before? That's what I look for. Like if I, if it's like, oh, you know, in many different occasions, I saw Tom, you know, be able to break out. Uh, he could have gone into to like, blah, but he, he broke out of it. He saw through the bullshit. And every time he, Tom has done this, it's opened up a path for me that I didn't foresee. That's the kind of thing uh, you can, you can see that in the traditions that people are, are looking for in individuals. Yeah. 
I would, I mean, it, it of course requires that people can recognize what cutting through the bu bullshit looks like. Right. Yeah. And so this is of course, this kind of paradoxical issue of sort of, you need to have that capacity. And yet that is also the skill set that's in some ways supposed to be taught by the person that, that you are finding trustworthy. So, yeah. um, which opens up the possibility that there are, that there's a plurality of different, um, uh, skills, skill capacities for being able to do that, that, that cutting yes. through the bullshit is itself a kind of, uh, you know, unfolds through a spectrum so that certain things, you know, sort of, uh, more obvious things can be immediately sort of, oh yeah, I, I get that sense. But then as you maybe are guided along and, and, and are, uh, pro you know, you progress through this developmental process or this, this learning, this cultivation, you can, sort of cut through more and more refined layers of bullshit, uh, potentially. Um, uh, is that, do you think that that is the, uh, a fair way of, of saying that? Yeah, I think putting it together, what we're looking for are individuals. We want plausible, we want plausible, that it's plausible that they are complexifying on a, a specific kind of optimal grip, which is the ability uh, to cut through bullshit. Um, and, right, and, and to, and to, uh, do it in um, a wide, you know, like I said, plausible, wide variety of situations, wide variety of pathways. Um, yeah, um, I, it's kind, it's like, this is a, a notion that Paul, Paul Vanderclay makes use of, you know, I, I think at the initial levels, I mean, like in, in predictive processing, all you're doing is the brain is just trying to predict its own sensory motor patterns, right? I think at the at the very basic levels, we're looking for a kind of dead reckoning rather than here's the grand vision of where you're going to end up, right? And Jordan Peterson talks about this, you know, in the, the Bible. You know, don't talk to people about the gospel if if they need a coat, right? That kind of that kind of idea, which is can right? We look we look for individuals at, at least at a basic level who are capable of helping people do the dead reckoning of moving away from self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior, moving towards just more meaning in life. I'm more connected to myself, to other people, to reality. And we're and we very sort of, I would propose, very metaphysically agnostic, the way Lehman talks about. Are you just getting the dead reckoning going? And then if that person can help me, can help others, you know, initial dead reckoning, then they sort of earn, I don't know what to call it, the right or the privilege to start, you know, foreseeing where the dead reckoning might be going, something mm -hmm. like that. They, 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 they speak out of the dead reckoning rather than having yeah. a pre-established utopia towards which they are drawing people. Which, which, that's, for, that's, yeah, that's what I'm. And for me, that means that that this this the trustworthiness is always incremental, or, or I shouldn't say always, but but if we think about it in an incremental fashion, as as being I'm here, and there's maybe this is where I used to be, and here's where this person is, you know, in front of me that I'm that I'm trusting that I'm that I'm learning from, as it were. Um, then you get this sort of unfolding series of kind of partially overlapping uh, layers, in the sense that who I find trustworthy today. I don't think I would have been looking to them 10 years ago, right? So I've exactly. been able to go yeah. through that process. Yeah, there's something about this um, 
it, well, what I wanted to make this point about this was we were talking also about institutions as regulators of integration yeah, and, yeah. And, and the problem of over homogeneity and sort of, you know, too much difference in diversity. But if we think about it there, that that's the sweet spot, really, is that you're in communities of people who are both calling you forward and whom you are able to, from your vantage point, assist in that process. So that's yeah. why you go to church. That's why, you know, you find the, uh, the, the importance of that. That diversity, not just not solely because it'll open you up to different perspectives and that sort of a thing, but it's part of the um, it's part of the the pedagogical process in itself. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, the, the the image I almost have in my mind is is that kind of Dionysian uh, hierarchy of the the celestial orders, and that he has a whole notion, you know, drawn yeah, from yeah, Plotinus yeah. and all that of sort of the you know the archangels. They'll they'll tend to the 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 you know stratum below them the angels or what have you and you know this it is yep. each each layer above is sort of leading up the previous layer and and that is uh, sort of a a task that is itself i think uh, a well a, a, you know a practice that i think is part of uh, religious practice. It's sort of, it's, it's a built-in pedagogical practice. It's not like the elite is just leading everyone somewhere. It's that no, the no, whole no. community is leading itself. Um, and to be able, if, if there is something that the elites are doing is they're able to get a, a broader sense of that whole picture of incremental change and then getting the broader uh, perspective of, well, where is this leading and, and what can we say about the bigger picture, which is something that you can't see when you're, when you're more in the process. I mean, that, that's really cool. I mean, because so what, 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 like in the brain, what happens is the higher levels try to predict the patterns that are going to show up in the lower levels. And then if, if they're wrong, they don't, they, what they do is they, they change, they try to change their model, right. So that they can better predict, uh, right. And then they pass that down to the next level. Uh, and so, the, and, and then, and, and then it, it just recursively all the way down until at the bottom level, you're just doing, you're, you're, the, the level above is predicting what, right, the patterns of dead reckoning for those, for the lowest level, right? There, here's a sensory motor pattern, and it's, right, and, and if we do, if we go that way, we're going to do the dead reckoning as the internal distress is going to go down somewhat, um, kind of thing. Um, so, as, and maybe that's, you know, Again, there's a, there's a commit. I mean, Stanovich says, you know, one, one, the hallmark of, of rationality is ability to commit to the process um, rather than being fixated on the pro product, right? Uh, and this is why I'm using the dead reckoning model. If if everybody is, and this is, I think, part of the Vedic formulation that Layman's proposing, everybody, if everybody's committed to a process, right? Uh, you know, the, 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 a share, right. It's like the Darwinian process is shared, but the Darwinian products can vary as long as everybody is committed to this overall process. I mean, that's what, that's what we used to think when we believed in democracy, that people could, were committed to process, the processes and that we all committed to, and what's happened is what we did is we gave priority to procedural justice over substantial justice because we figured this would be the, how we dead reckon towards that. Now we've inverted it, which is, I think this is another conversation, very dangerous for us as, uh, for us as a society. Uh, but I do think that that, that, that it would be something I would look for too, um, is that uh, like do the, is, is all, are all the levels 
that the level is leading is only leading to the degree to which it is self-correcting in its modeling of the level below us. That's the, the level below it. Sorry, not us, right? There has to be like embedded a, a shared ethos of, right, uh, of this deep integration of uh, self-correction from, uh, from below and, and, uh, and, and prediction and leadership from above. I'm proposing that we model our processing on the best processors that we know about rather than what we've done before. What we've done before is we sort of, here's where we want to be, and then we model the processing uh, in terms of that. And I'm proposing an alternative way in which we model the processing. We look at some of the best processors that are available, the brain and, and various social configurations, like when democratic societies are functioning, and we try to figure out what what what's what what are the moto, what's the modus operandi of this? Like what are the principles by which these things operate in this intelligent, adaptive, self-correcting fashion? And then try to model the processing on that. That's what I, that's another thing I just wanted to explicate as an alternative strategy than the strategies we've been using in the past, which is we get a vision of where we want to be, and then we we plan for that, and then we organize according to the plan. And I, I'm proposing something very different to that. Yeah, I, not I think to go. All, oh, sorry, sorry, I think we're all um, uh, reasonably on the same page about that part, John. Where yeah. uh, if there's what we might call a telos, it, it's a mutually adaptive telos that continues to change. It's a, it's how well we're um, doing the process in the moment. It's not a fixed goal set. And you could say it is, in fact, a fixed goal set in the sense that we're trying to get back to that optimal thing, but we're trying to get back to that adaptively in each moment rather than setting some static form of it from the past. Mm. That's good. I I think we could be helped then if we're we're in agreement. I'll, I'll take another step. I think we could be helped again by taking very careful look at, you know, how living things work and how... Uh, how how cognition works and how you know viable systems you know uh, how distributed cognition have worked Uh, and then try to use that again as just saying we're going to get we're going to try and make the uh, the best the best recursively self-correcting process that will dead reckon us right in the way that these things are adaptive We, we will it will take us away hopefully reliably away from uh, suffering, both the distress and loss of agency, and towards enhanced connectedness with ourselves, with each other in the world. And, and that, that to me, um, um, is a very, um, I, I don't want to say, I don't want to be too strong, but it's a good alternative to the utopic planning uh, way in which we have tried to do this in, in the past. Um, and therefore, I'm looking for a significant difference from how we've done it in the past so that we have rational hope that we won't, we, we can do, we can overcome some of the mistakes of the past. Um, and h- how we've done it in the past is a, is a fluctuating terrain. So yeah. it would be really interesting in my mind, the way I think about it is you would take an analysis of how these complex adaptive multi-layered process systems operate well, 
And then yeah. you would also look at how we've tried to instantiate religions or wisdom-like projects socially over time and see where it looks like they were doing better and where it looks like they were doing worse. And is there some kind of matchup, right? Is, is the, are the systems yeah. approximating Excellent. these processors over time? And Excellent. then we have a really interesting data set from that. Yes, I think that's a brilliant proposal. Exactly. And you could do, you know, you, you'd have the model, right, from the functionality, the mechanism, and then you'd have the data and you'd get a reflective equilibrium between them as the best account possible right now. I think that's an excellent and brilliant proposal, Layman. And it seems like, you know, both of you would be in a great position to be doing that sort of work, John, with your understanding of cognition and how these processes work and layman with your understanding of, of religious practices and, and history. And um, it'd be, you know, yeah, it'd be fascinating to try to map those two onto each other um, in a way that that could be that could be useful. Um, I, th I think it's more than useful. I think it, I think it's imperative. I, I really think this is a very good proposal of how to start generating specific content uh, to help us start to specifically organize communities and communities of communities. I think it's a very important project that we should, like, we should somehow consider about how to make it start happening. I maybe propose that this is where we pick up next time then, and maybe see if we can, we can deepen this idea or, uh, uh well, let's get... take, let's take it a little bit further, but I mean, there's a lot of research and reflection, uh, that needs to be done, but we could at least maybe start the ball rolling next time. Uh, I'm very excited about what Layman just said. Thank you, Layman. I think that's an excellent, excellent project proposal. Yeah, that would be, I think, an excellent place to pick up next time. And all, with all of us having a little bit of pondering on it between now and then. I think this question about uh, democracy and how those processes might enact uh, a sacred civic space in nations is also a very interesting question. Mm -hmm. And I think um, Brendan might be interested in bringing in the forms of myth a little bit more, because I think that's an important piece of this we haven't really delved into. So we're going to um, uh, join again soon on the Integral Stage podcast. Yes. Look forward to uh, meeting both of you there. Thank you both so much. This has been a pleasure and an honor to have such uh, such minds to to converse with and um, just, uh, you know, I deeply appreciate the conversation and uh, and where this is all going. And um, so until next time uh, on uh, on Lehman's channel, take care, everyone. Take care.